Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Pink Sheets Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery, a senior writer at the Pink Sheet, and I'm joined by fellow senior writer Sarah Carlin-Smith, senior editor Kathy Kelly, and executive editor Nielsen Hobbs. Today is November 19, 2021, and we've reached another monumental day in our journey through the COVID pandemic. It's rare that there's breaking news at the time we record the podcast, but about an hour ago, the FDA authorized vaccine booster shots for all adults. We are still waiting for the CDC's Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices to meet and discuss whether to recommend the vaccination for adults, but their approval is expected as well. The FDA authorized a third shot of the Pfizer, BioNTech, and Moderna mRNA vaccines for adults 18 and older at least six months after the initial two-shot series. This EUA update for boosters joins the decision earlier this year to allow boosters for those 65 and older and those 18 to 64 who were at high risk of severe COVID, as well as those 18 to 64 considered in high risk situations. I think we're all still digesting the news a little bit here, but is there anything that sticks out to you on uh, on this announcement, other than that it came out at you know 8.30 in the morning on a Friday? So one thing, <laughs> and I don't know if maybe there'll be more, um, you know, usually FDA sometimes releases more information on kind of the support for the approval or authorization than just a press release eventually. But I guess it doesn't look like they necessarily looked at this Pfizer um, study. There there was a 10,000 person study Pfizer had recently reported results from that, like actually looked at, you know, hard sort of clinical outcomes in terms of the benefits of boosting and not just kind of, you know, immunogenicity and um, you know, antibody levels and so forth. And it doesn't seem like that was um, looked at here. And I'm just kind of curious as to, you know, why that was, because it it seemed like for this, again, for this particular population, people were really looking for kind of more reassurance of that, like, true clinical benefit. Well, I know we've seen this problem before where they've had, uh, I can't, and I'm blanking on which, which booster authorization it was, but they said, you know, there was a huge... Um, I think it was one of the Janssen EUAs. There was a huge trial with all this data that they sent, and they frankly said, we just don't have time to look at all this and you know, may, and get this done in what they considered a timely way. So I, I, they either, I can't, I'm trying, for some reason I can't remember it now, but they just, they didn't, the decision wasn't based on a lot of the data they saw in there. They were able to look at part of it, but not all of it. I mean, maybe... I'm just, that's completely speculation on my part, but I'm wondering if they just didn't have time to look at a 10,000 patient uh, trial. I think that's uh, right, Derek. It seems like, uh, you know, there is concern about uh, what's going to happen with the uh, the pandemic over the winter, uh, um, you know, if there's another surge and sort of the the thought uh, uh, from uh, FDA, maybe that sort of we want to sort of get this authorization uh, out there as soon as possible. And there just wasn't time to, uh, you know, review that uh, um, massive trial. Uh, although I imagine if uh, um, you know there were some sort of uh, red flags, they were uh, um, finding in their preliminary review that would have uh, taken more time with it. Uh, it's interesting to think that uh, um, you know the difference between authorization and approval uh, um, in this case perhaps is uh, not so much that there wasn't enough data, but sort of that uh, you know FDA was just sort of moving too fast for the. Uh, um, Data to get, get its usual, usual review. It's not sort of kind of how, uh, you know, I think sort of kind of the, uh, uh, perhaps, you know, perhaps the more simplistic model of a uh, EUA versus a full BLA is uh, is thought of. But uh, you know, uh, um, you know, if there is actually uh, um, you know 10,000 patients of rigorous uh, 
data collection uh, out there that uh, you know should be enough for a full BLA. And perhaps the reason it's uh, um, it's not is that uh, um, you know FDA just feels that uh, it's more important to get this uh, um, get these shots in arms. Uh, um, you know, with the uh, um, with the cooling weather and people heading inside for the uh, the holidays and uh, all the rest. So uh, um, that may be the factor more than anything to do with the uh, the data itself. Yeah, another thing I thought was interesting, and this is just me, you know reading the reading through the the announcements is that there was a quote from um, Peter Marks, who's the director of the the Center for Biologics Evaluation Research that uh, signs off on the vaccine um, uh, applications. They said that the allowing the boosters for adults will help eliminate confusion about who may receive a booster and ensure boosters are available to all who need one, which I, I just I found that interesting that they were looking to eliminate confusion when a bunch of states have already just come out and said, if you're over 18, go get a booster. <laughs> so including, I, I think, uh, I, I want to say there was some mentioned in at, um, some, even some places in Maryland, although I don't think Maryland has actually come out and said officially, I can't remember whether or not they said where you can get a booster if you're 18 or older or not. But, um, you know, I just thought it was interesting that they, you know, they're trying to eliminate confusion when, you know, that was, I mean, that was one of the things that played into this uh, when this has been, states have been, have had their policies in place for a while now. I guess most, yeah, I mean, most of the states' um, changes seem to have come in the past, like, week or so, um, at least to, I, to my knowledge, at sort of the point where we had already kind of gotten the hint, FDA and CDC were going to make changes as well. Um, but I think the states sort of were basically, because there was so much, um wiggle room in some of the criteria laid out initially by CDC and FDA in terms of who qualified in that 18 to 65 um, range. I think some states were basically saying like because of, you know, the rates of COVID in their region and so forth, kind of everybody lives and works in a place, you know, where they're at this like elevated risk and um, you could probably, in my mind, I'm, I'm not quite sure. I think they were sort of pulling at the, you know, I'm not sure they're really holding true to what CDC and FDA crafted, but at the same time, and that would probably mean they're sort of doing, to some extent, like off-label administration or certainly administration that's not quite um, in line with the CDC's provider um, agreement that the vaccine administrators administrators or who's ever giving the vaccine has to, you know, <laughs> sign. But um, at the same time, I think, like, the risk of the states doing this was very low because we know that for that 18 to 65 pop group, um, it's all self, you know, attestation of whether you meet any of the criteria. Nobody was checking it. So if people wanted to try and get a booster before when they didn't really yeah. qualify, it wasn't particularly hard. Um, yeah. I, I should have, I should so have I don't said think that CDC too. This was going to a... kind of go after anybody for doing this. But yeah, I mean, I, I do think like, there's a lot of unique things about this circumstance, um, but it is like a little bit worrisome to me in thinking about this and how this could play out in other situations to have states just sort of, you know, change the federal government's guidance um, and create that added layer of kind of, you know, confusion or question of who, again, there's like all this questioning of who's the right scientific authorities and so forth. And it just doesn't seem helpful in a crisis to have all these kind of like competing groups <laughs> making decisions. You know, I think uh, um, 
another uh, interesting uh, aspect of this is that they did not go uh, back to the uh, uh, advisory committee to get an advisory committee recommendation for the uh, the boosters for all. Uh, uh, you know, obviously not a uh, um, unique situation that uh, they uh, authorized boosters from immunocompromised uh, adults without a uh, um, advisory committee. But given that the advisory committee uh, uh, has already uh, twice kind of said that they didn't think there was enough. Uh, um, data to support a uh, um, universal adult uh, booster. It's just sort of interesting that they uh, went ahead with it uh, um, without uh, getting them another uh, getting them to uh, getting the advisory committee to sign off on it. Well, yeah, and there also were some some statements by committee members both during some of the more recent meetings and even in after that outside of the meetings that weren't like 100% in favor of booster shots. And so, yeah, I, I agree, Matt, that was kind of a, I, I thought it was a little, a little interesting that they didn't, uh, that they didn't, they didn't go, um, you know, and at, at least and ask, at least and have the discussion with the committee. I mean, it, there's, it's no, you know, we, it's well known now that the FDA doesn't have to do what the advisory committee says, but, uh, you know, to have the discussion in public and where, I mean, they could have at least, you know, laid out the, uh, you know, the the issues they're having with the surge in Europe and, you know, and maybe, you know, obviously everyone's opinions evolving as we go along here. But, um, you know, when you present all that data and, you know, and whatever else they have that they made this decision on, maybe that changes everyone's minds. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, the biggest like disappointment in not having an advisory committee, but maybe we'll get this um, from CDC is just like not seeing some of the data um, again that we've sort of heard about. Um, by a press release, but in more detail. But again, since I'm not sure the FDA looked at it or considered it, maybe it doesn't matter <laughs> as much. But um, right, like I think a lot of people were really hoping, to, like that 10,000 person study I mentioned earlier on, I think a lot of people were really hoping to get more than just the top line data Pfizer released in their press release. And an advisory committee meeting normally would have kind of forced that out in the public. Well, and there's also, I mean, I, I think the debate is pretty, you know, the 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 FDA is pretty much settled on, you know, six months after the primary series is seems to be kind of the sweet spot for getting the um, for getting the booster. But I know, I mean, some of the studies have shown that, you know, if you, I don't, I don't think it was clear in some of the studies where, you know, like they said, like if you wait longer, the response is better in a lot of cases, and. You know, so yeah, I think maybe they, you know, I I'm wondering if maybe there'll be a more kind of robust discussion of when to actually give the booster as opposed to just say, go find a pharmacy and get one right now. You know, you know, if you're six months after your primary series, which most people are at this point. Yeah, I mean, I think that, well, I mean, I think they're balancing, again, this kind of confusion issue and because for for all the other recommendations so far although J&J &J is a little bit different but um for the mRNA vaccines because it's been this you know six months wait at least six months um I don't think they'd want to do something different right now I, I mean as as maybe like COVID becomes kind of endemic and if we think people are you know are going to kind of continually need kind of boosters or if, as they think about how to vaccinate, you know, people who for whatever reason, you know, didn't, weren't vaccinated, you know, early on in this pandemic, like maybe they'll change things. But I, 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 I think they'd have to have like a really, really strong scientific justification to change things now, given that, you know, all the confusion people already seem to feel over the recommendations. 
Yeah, no, I, I agree. It, it, yeah, it's hard to it's hard to make changes like that midstream, and you know, especially when you're you're trying to vaccinate people, give people the primary series, and then you're trying to tell them three you know different things about you know when to, when another shot's needed and so forth. One thing that will be interesting coming up, and I I want to say I saw a headline on this in the UK is now that boosters are approved, is the definition of fully vaccinated going to change in the US? Because that's, you know, that 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 changes kind of like work, whether you can go back to work and with a lot of the, you know, these policies and and so forth. So, um, you know, that'll be kind of the next the next thing we have to we have to watch, uh, you know, going for, um, you know, in, with this now that, uh, you know, boosters are pretty much are uh, are have been authorized. So. I agree, Derek. I've I've seen some news about that, too. And I actually think there is maybe some states are beginning to, you know, change the definition. So fully vaccinated means, you know, two shots plus a booster. Um, yeah, I think Connecticut maybe is one of those that was seem to at least be considering that, if not trying to formally do that. And um, again, I, I saw some people kind of worried that, you know, you just kind of create this whole level of logistical confusion um, if there isn't consistency um, across the country. And obviously, they seem to be doing it before the formal FDA and CDC recommendations, which creates whole other issues of, you know, how can a state basically tell you you need to do something that the CDC hasn't even recommended yet? You know, we are sort of uh, ticking up in... uh in general on uh, um, level of uh, vaccinations. And I was uh, um, thinking as I sometimes do about uh, COVID uh, counterfactuals and, uh, um, uh, you know, wondering sort of kind of how people would feel about the pandemic and sort of kind of what the uh, um, debate would be if um, the vaccine efficacy were, say, at, um, you know, you know, 55, 60% sort of about where we are in terms of uh, adult vaccination, but everyone had gotten one that's sort of kind of that, um, where, uh, um, you know, where the arguments would be, sort of kind of where the public opinion would be about sort of kind of uh, um, how to behave, uh, um, you know, now in the pandemic if, uh, um, you know, the vaccines were not sort of kind of as effective as they are, but there was more actual universal uh, vaccinations, maybe a, uh, um, an actual epide- epidemiologist can sort of pencil out the, uh, n- the numbers to uh, um, make my scenario work. But just the idea that uh, um, because they're so... Uh, highly effective, the whole uh, need for, you know, herd immunity is not as uh, um, strong, although obviously it doesn't go away, is, but it's not as strong as it is with some other uh, diseases where it's sort of kind of the, um, the, the transmissibility and the, uh, the power of the vaccine or sort of kind of, uh, uh, you know, perhaps uh, require it a bit more for, uh, for personal protection. So uh, um, just, uh, um, just curious if people had sort of thoughts on that and uh, um, where, uh, um, what what code counterfactuals uh, um, you all might be uh, might be playing with in your minds? <laughs> <laughs> well, just because the the um, uh, you know FDA had set that fifty uh, percent uh, threshold and through kind of uh, you know uh, um, you know or through kind of in in some ways we're kind of well above that given the the, the, the highly efficacious uh, vaccine has been uh, um, been uh, uh, received by. Uh, by more people than that, so it's uh, um, you know it's perhaps we're kind of where for kind of uh, um, you know the uh, the low benchmark for uh, um, a uh, a mass vaccination uh, 
um, campaign uh, uh, would have been had uh, um, had things worked out differently in terms of kind of the uh, the effects seen in the trials. Yeah, I think it came up a little bit at some of the uh, meet the meetings when Johnson and Johnson's booster was was being discussed, which is like essentially that if we didn't have these mRNA series <laughs> that looks so good, people might not have even thought about the fact that like, well, maybe we sh the Johnson Johnson one should always have been a two series run run. You know, given I mean that vaccine was certainly also well above fifty percent, but not quite at the M mRNA level. So there is this, right, your, your sort of um, expectations of what the vaccines can do and what you want them to do just sort of change as you, um, you know, <laughs> get almost more out of them. Well, and would there have been such an aggressive booster campaign if the vaccines weren't as effective as they as they were? I mean, that, that seemed to be kind of like one of the prime reasons to get a booster was like, oh my God, you, you know, you push your your response back up to 90 whatever it was 90 90 plus percent i mean if it was started out at 60 and it you know maybe you pushed it back up to 60 again if it you know if you did that i mean would there be would we be all be racing to get you know another shot i don't know it's an interesting question <laughs> I think to some degree, I don't know, maybe I would think we might be racing even more given the, the level of unvaccinated people in this country, because it seems like, right, you don't, everybody would feel more vulnerable if the initial protection and wasn't as solid. Right. I guess the, I was thinking this for kind of the, the uh, smaller protection from the vaccine, but in some scenario, if everyone had gotten it, maybe it's, uh, you know, the same for kind of, uh, you know, overall population uh, um uh, affected obviously it's right. not sort of kind of how, how it works but sort of but uh, um but yeah it's a uh, um yeah i guess i'm just not sure with um how people think about the like if you think about how people think about the flu shot that seems like a, a, a vaccine where people often say like they're not going to get it because it's not right like a lot of it doesn't have that like high level of efficacy, right? It doesn't guarantee you don't get the flu, it, it, but it usually, um, you know, the big benefit of it, it one, for like an individual is that if you do get the flu, it's likely going to be, you know, much milder and, you know, you're not hopefully not going to end up hospitalized or dying from the flu. And that seems like that's, oh, that's been like a long running um, public, um, you know, a public health challenge of like to convince people to get something that, you know, that's, 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 you know, slightly imperfect in that way. So I wonder if, I don't know, I guess I'm skeptical that we would have had better uptake with a worse vaccine. <laughs> a fair point. I mean, if you look at, uh, um, you know, we're certainly not, I mean, there are other countries, uh, you know, I guess the, uh, comparing it to the UK, there's where there's, uh, um, where there's higher uptake, so it's conceivable that we're going to see that, that they, this doesn't have to be the, um, the uptake, but you're right, this were kind of the, the bitter irony of uh, um, uh, flu vaccine is that sort of kind of that the um, the fact that it doesn't sort of kind of uh, you know sort of kind of work absolutely for you means that you probably should get it more than uh, um, uh, just to sort of kind of help others around you perhaps that sort of kind of that uh, um, the uh, the reason to um, to get it is that sort of kind of it's uh, um, it it's uh, um, you need it for for the herd immunity effect uh, um, so it's a it's a it's a um, bad trade-off there in, in terms of kind of the messaging. Yeah, it's it's interesting, uh, you know, it, and, you know, I'm sure there'll be lots of, you know, business cases and after-action reports and books and textbooks and probably multi-volume multi series of books written that people, academics and 
you and I and everyone else will read. It's, you know, looking back at how we could have done this better and, you know, what little things caused huge changes and so forth. It's interesting. It's an interesting thought exercise. We also saw this week another twist in the saga of the controversial Alzheimer's drug Aduhelm. Kathy, you wrote an interesting story about how Medicare Part B premiums will go up next year in part to pay for the use of this drug. Yeah. Um, so in its recent annual announcement of, of the standard Medicare Part B premiums um, for 2022 for the coming year, CMS um, said there would be an unprecedented increase in the premium, like 14.5 percent to 170.10, I mean, to $170.10. Um, that attracted a lot of angst um, in the public, um, and CMS explained that the increase reflected higher healthcare costs and other factors related to the pandemic, but was also based on the agency's intention to create what they, what they call a contingency fund to potentially pay for Aduhelm and similar drugs, similar amyloid-directed um, monoclonal antibodies for Alzheimer's. Um, CMS was quick to add that this shouldn't be taken as evidence that it would broadly cover these drugs. Um, there's a national coverage determination to decide what the coverage policy would be that's still underway, and a, a final decision isn't due until um, April. But um, because of the potential cost to Medicare as the primary payer of, of these drugs, um, uh, the agency felt it really needed to build some financial reserves to handle the potential costs. Um, so, you know, it's 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 a little hard to know how to interpret this. Um, I would say, if nothing else, it shows that Medicare realizes this expense is coming. We don't necessarily know when, but um, as the science around Alzheimer's treatment continues to advance, um, I think I think the Adjuham approval was really a wake-up call. To, to Medicare and they realize that they need to plan for for paying for these drugs. So do they, so then so do they think that they're just gonna these these drugs are gonna be widely used once they do get a coverage determination then or at least is that I mean I guess, I'm guess assuming that's the plan. <laughs> yeah well I think you know certainly there's a potential that they could. Um, I mean the the experience so far with Adjuhelm it, it has been that you know, prescribers are very reluctant to prescribe it because of the weak data um, underlying the approval, and a lot of payers are you know hanging back. They're actually waiting for for Medicare to make a decision. But I, I think you know CMS probably expects that at some point you know there there will be some good drugs for Alzheimer's, and that they will be shouldering the burden of paying for them. So this is sort of the beginning. Of, of that, the process of building up, you know, reserves to to do that. Yeah, I mean, I think in many ways, uh, um, the idea that uh, Medicare is building a rainy day fund should be uh, should be hailed by uh, um, industry <laughs> that sort of kind of that says that uh, um, you know they're they're uh, they're committed to paying for this stuff. They're not going to uh, um, try and avoid it somehow. But uh, you know, obviously, it's kind of no one likes to see uh, um, premiums go up and. Uh, um, uh, you know, as you were saying, Kathy, uh, you know, uh, and uh, uh, like I said in the last segment, that's sort of kind of this is another uh, Adjuhelm is another product where sort of kind of uh, you know FDA uh, did not get the answer it wanted at the uh, at the advisory committee, and so as with uh, um, uh, boosters for adults, they sort of kind of they uh, they went ahead and uh, cleared it, uh, um, 
you know, uh, without uh, going back to an advisory committee to uh, um, to get a more formal uh, more formal yes, and to to the uh, extent that that has kind of uh, you know created this controversy that uh, um, has reduced uh, reduced sales and may sort of kind of uh, you know uh, discourage that kind of uh, um, behavior again uh, from uh, um, uh, from companies to the extent that they can through kind of influence that uh, um, that behavior by the uh, by the FDA. But uh, you know FDA, FDA's rationale on the uh, Agilehelm was to a certain extent to uh, you know encourage um, further development in the area by creating an approval and an approval that doesn't sort of kind of produce any uh, any revenue didn't uh, didn't achieve that so sort of a, perhaps it's a lesson there but uh, an approval that uh, creates a rainy day fund for a uh, a future uh, um, uh, future sales of perhaps another product uh, you know does sort of kind of send that message so uh, you know perhaps uh, CMS is doing what. Uh, um, what FDA was hoping to do in terms of through kind of uh, inducing demand to a uh, a certain extent of uh, of new products, and there are obviously sort of some already in the pipeline. Uh, with little expecting uh, uh, to uh, to file, I guess next year is it? Uh, um, so uh, mm-hmm. um, we'll uh, um, we'll see how it goes. Yeah, it's true. I, I and there are two other you know drugs in sort of late stage. I think Biogen and uh, Isai have another one, and. Roche, I think, is developing one in this um, in this space too. So, I do think that the approval probably gave encouragement to the industry that you know this this was a viable market. And um, you know, predictions have been that CMS probably will cover these drugs. There may be restrictions or strings attached, but I haven't heard many people, you know, predict that CMS is going to deny coverage altogether. So. Yeah, I think um, the industry can, ex- you know, is sort of cautiously optimistic about how this process will will play out in Medicare. So it could be that it could be the uh, blockbuster Biogen is hoping for that it doesn't sort of wait through uh, um, many many months of, uh, of bad headlines before uh, before that. Or maybe the next one that they're working on. I have heard that that has shown better, um, you know, results in research. So, you know, maybe down the road. Um, they'll get the payoff that they want. Although it seems like, uh, Kathy, perhaps they're not going to get a payoff in uh, in Europe, where Biogen had to uh, um, uh, decided to uh, to pull their uh, their application. Right. Um, they've gotten an indication that that they they won't get coverage there, and um, so yeah, that's that's bad news in Europe for them. Does that? Do, I mean, how much does a, a decision in Europe really affect? uptake in the U.S.? I mean, is it, you know, do people look at that or, you know, consider that when they're trying to decide what to do here? You know, I, I, I don't, I don't think so. I mean, I think generally it seems that the industry feels that the U.S. market is more welcoming (laughs) than, say, the European market. And I think that's in part because coverage policies are tied up with pricing um, in Europe. And, you know, Medicare is, by law, not allowed to consider price in its coverage policies. So, um, so that just isn't isn't really a you know a factor um, in this country. Yeah, I guess one thing um, to note is that Biogen has sort of announced that you know Europe kind of took a preliminary vote and it doesn't look like they're going to approve it, but they ha- haven't made their final decision, and it doesn't seem like there's a lot of details publicly available as to why. They're rejecting it, but um, I, I feel like this is 
situ drug has become kind of a unique situation in terms of the amount of kind of publicity <laughs> and um, attention it's gotten given the kind of FDA approval process, the data we have for it and the data we don't have for it. So I do sort of wonder if, um, especially given that there's been such slow uptake now and a number of very prominent hospitals have, um, you know, declined to cover it. I, I, I think like normally I wouldn't expect most Americans to be influenced in any way by what Europe covers, but I do wonder if like this adds to like another wave of, you know, coverage of, you know, maybe the FDA, you know, making a poor decision or something like that, that does influence Americans in a way we normally wouldn't expect them to be influenced by, you know, yeah. drug approval decisions by other regulators. Yeah. Just more bad news. Yeah. It, uh... Yeah, the sort of snowballing effect that sort of kind of creates a uh, you know, general impression that sort of can't be overcome regardless of sort of what CMS decides to do on its, uh, um, you know, uh, national coverage decision. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, that's, you know, once again, another another topic that uh, just, you know, refuses to go away. And so we'll have, I'm sure, many more discussions about the next uh, the next evolution of, of the Agihome saga. Yeah, well, there's a draft decision um, that's due out in January, so that'll be the next big thing from Medicare, that is. Yeah, perfect uh, post-New Year's Day uh, present. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, today, we're going to discuss President Biden's pick for FDA commissioner, Robert Califf. Biden had telegraphed that he was narrowing his decision to Califf in recent weeks, so this was not a surprise. But now the fun part begins, where Califf will meet with senators and others on Capitol Hill in the hopes of smoothing the confirmation process. There's a number of issues that he would face, though, in the uh, in a confirmation hearing and in these private meetings with the various senators and so forth. Um, you know, for the panel, do you do you all think there's like one big one that uh, that's going to stick out at the at this moment? I think the thing to watch is probably just for kind of the the general uh, the thermostatic uh, partisanship, uh, um, you know, obviously he sort of sailed through the uh, the Senate in uh, um, uh, 2016, uh, the last time he was uh, uh, nominated through this, uh, um, although there were obviously sort of delays before he, uh, he got there, but it was an overwhelming vote uh, um, once he did. And, uh, you know, I think that was a big factor in his, uh, um, in his nomination this time around. But, uh, you know, if there's a, um, uh, less of a uh, commitment just sort of kind of to uh, um, let any uh, um, any Biden nominee through, then uh, um, perhaps uh, um, perhaps it could be uh, uh, trouble for him uh, as opposed to any kind of individual uh, issues about his uh, policy or, uh, you know, potential conflict of interest and, you know, work with the farmer or anything like that. I don't see that being an issue. Uh, you know, he obviously sort of got through in uh, 2016 when many others were uh, were. Uh, continue to be bottled up so that, uh, um, you know, he's already shown that he can sort of kind of, uh, um, you know, uh, avoid those uh, um, uh, kind of roadblocks. But, uh, um, you know, if there is a uh, a major change or, uh, um, you know, some uh, feeling on the GOP's part that they sort of kind of have to make a stand against uh, um, uh, Biden COVID policies and sort of this is the uh, the hill to do it on, then he could be in, uh, in trouble. But, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, he uh, will lose a few Democratic votes that we've already seen. Uh, Joe Manchin's already said he doesn't uh, um, doesn't uh, doesn't like the idea of uh, uh, Califf, uh, so he's probably going to vote against uh, against him, and so he'll need uh, um, uh, GOP votes. But he's uh, um, already gotten those and uh, um, should be okay. 
Yeah, I was one. I, I wondered about the part, you know, the partisan stuff, especially after we saw some of the headlines where they were, you know, there were questions of whether they would just say no, just because. And, you know, but, uh, you know, you wonder if I, I think there's still a, a recognition that the FDA, you know, there's still bipartisan recognition that the FDA needs a commissioner confirmed. And, you know, while they there might be some complaining and, you know, some wrangling and so forth, I, you know, I, I think at the end of the day, I think they still realize that FDA needs a commissioner. And considering that enough people have said that Janet Woodcock should not be the commissioner full time, the longer they wait to confirm Caliph, the longer Janet Woodcock remains commissioner. So the or at least on an acting basis. So, you know, it, it's a you know, it, it's an interesting uh, uh, situation that they're that they find themselves in. Although a lot of the GOP people like Woodcock. So um, I don't know how, how how they feel about her in comparison to Caliph. But yeah, um, I don't know if you're going to find any anyone who's uh, pro Caliph, but anti uh, anti Woodcock. So uh, um, sorry, sorry, go ahead. No, I mean, that was basically what I was going to say is like, I think like if there was someone else in this acting commissioner role, people, um, including maybe the Biden administration themselves, might have felt more pressure to do this faster. But I'm not sure, you know, how much pressure there truly is to get um, Woodcock out of there and for the Senate to move fast here, because I, I, I don't think people see her as being the typical kind of acting commissioner in terms of some of the downsides of that, that, you know, people normally worry about, even in this unique kind of COVID situation. Yeah, I mean, the the, the line of succession has like one of the deputy commissioners, I believe, or at least it, it's at one point it did, um, you know, and we've seen that when uh, when when uh, Dr. Hamburg left, it, where there was kind of an interim, P, you know, portion there where there was a, they just invoked the line of succession and it was a, uh, those who remember it, it was a it wasn't a bad situation but it was a, a really different situation than kind of the way janet's been running the agency and um you know in an acting role so yeah i could you know that that would create some motivation to to um you know to put some to put somebody in there who's confirmed so assuming that uh caliph does get uh um confirmed you know i think as uh sarah was mentioning the um the covid pandemic uh may uh um create some real opportunities for him to uh, um, move forward with some of uh, um, some policy changes on uh, clinical trials that uh, um, he was obviously, obviously sort of quite passionate about. But as we've seen over the uh, um, the last, uh, um, uh, um, I'll go ahead and call it two years now of <laughs> COVID, even though it's not quite uh, maybe a year and a half is, is more of a, more of an accurate statement. But uh, um, you know, a lot of us were kind of. Uh, um, insufficient data so we're kind of given the old way of uh, um doing things and then sort of kind of this, this uh uh important push for uh you know racial equity in uh, um in trial enrollment and uh, um this that uh, could could be sort of some hallmarks of uh, um of his tenure at uh, um fda although he has obviously a broad uh, a broad set of priorities but it'll be interesting to see what he uh, what he ends up doing at the agent at, at fda yeah i heard him i heard him speak yesterday um during the uh during the PCORI annual meeting, and he talked about a lot of his, you know, a lot of these ideas that he's been working on, you know, in private industry uh, since he left the commissioner's office the first time, uh, you know, looking at, uh, you know, clinical trial reform and trying to reform the system in general so it's more inclusive and, and is more efficient and, you know, it gives easier access to clinical trials and, um, you know, to all patients and not just those that are near academic medical centers and, and so forth. That's, um, 
yeah, they, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm sure he's going to be pushing that. Um, and uh, just like, you know, Janet Woodcock has been pushing that as well, um, especially, you know, coming out of the pandemic, the lessons learned from the pandemic that decentralized trials can can be done and can be done well and create the kind of evidence that, um, um, you know, the, the FDA can use to make decisions and, um, you know, like reforming real world evidence and, and um, you know, and real world data and figuring out how that can be used in a you know, in in a decisional context and so forth. Um, you know, all those things we kind of learned, we're forced to do during the pandemic. And now, you know, I think, uh, you know, Caliph is the kind of the, you know, one of the people that could really take that and run with it, um, you know, and not kind of let it sit on the shelf. And, you know, the worry, the wor one of the worries that we heard was that things would go back to kind of the pre-pandemic, um, you know, way of doing business after, you know, once we kind of get through this and things kind of, I, I hate to say, I think saying going back to normal is a bad, you know, no one wants to use that phrase anymore because we're not going to go back to the way it was before March of 2020 or January of 2020. But, um, you know, getting back to some stage of where people are, aren't going to work and interacting in social situations and so forth is, um, you know, they don't want to see the clinical research um, enterprise go back to its its kind of old way of doing things, and um, you know certainly Caleb can be one of the people that you know kind of continues that push to make sure this change is permanent in a you know in a in a positive way. And he doesn't he bring you know a comfort level with big data from his work at Verily, the Google uh, healthcare um, business. Um, is is that expected to? you know, give more of a boost to the real world evidence push at, at FDA? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I think yeah. that I think that that'll be one of his. Yeah, you know, I mean, he'll get asked about that during confirmation hearings and so forth. And um, he'll they'll have to stop him from talking because he could talk about it for hours. Yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, because he's worked on that a lot and, and really believes in the power of real world evidence um, mm -hmm. going forward. Um, you know, one of the other things I was thinking about, you know, Matt, you talk about thinking about uh, kind of non-contextual type of um, ideas related to the pandemic. I was wondering yesterday if, if you know, when if Caleb gets confirmed and you know he kind of walks into the office, and, you know, whether or not kind of w one of the first issues he has to deal with is essentially a non-drug-related issue. I mean, we spend all this time talking about all the drug, you know, pharmaceutical issues that are you know pending at the FDA. I mean. That you could see some really big moves in tobacco policy right off the bat. They're already that that's already started. I think Scott Gottlieb even said that his first meeting was with the the um, the assistant commissioner for tobacco products because of the because that, that they just happened to have you know something huge pop up you know like on his first or second day or something like that. It was um, it was interesting. I just curious you know wonder if he ends up having to deal with non drug issues you know early on. Yeah, I mean, FDA was in the court, was it this week, on uh, um, menthol issues. So you're absolutely right, Derek, that, uh, um, you know, you can never uh, um, uh, predict sort of what's going to uh, um, happen. And uh, um, obviously, uh, um, you know, the uh, FDA commissioner is not uh, king, even if he uh, spent all his day just focusing on clinical trials, he may not be able to get those uh, um uh, you know, reforms uh, um, reforms done in a uh, um, in the way that he might like to see the uh, the system change. So uh, you know, he's going to have to sort of kind of uh, surf the tides, and uh, you know, who knows if there'll be a uh, um, 
um, another sort of kind of, uh, you know, uh, emerging public health uh, threat like uh, the pandemic emerged or if there's, uh, you know, going to be some, uh, um, you know, foodborne illness crisis that sort of kind of will uh, demand his attention or uh, um, or what have you. So it's just it's hard to say sort of kind of what uh, what you're going to have to be dealing with when you're sort of kind of, uh, you know, in charge of the, uh, the agency, as, which, uh, as I'd like to say, what uh, um, is responsible for, uh, you know, 25 percent of the economy in terms of sort of kind of what it what. Uh, um, what it oversees. So, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a big job and, uh, um, you know, you don't get to set your, set your gender really. So. Yeah. You never know. I mean, you could end up with, uh, you know, uh, another kind of a bunch of headlines about the, you know, Scott Gottlieb's famous, uh, uh, uh quip that, uh, that, uh, nuts don't lactate or something like that. And you um, know, that uh, yeah, comes almonds, uh, almonds right, don't for, lactate. For yeah. almond milk. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So yeah, and th- that that issue hasn't gone away. I mean, they're, they're still trying to. <laughs> the dairy industry is still trying to get them to stop saying that that it's milk. So, uh, you know that you know that those kinds of things could come up. You know, certainly, uh, you know, going forward. So, well, that's all for this week. For more, check out our website at www.thepinksheet.com. You can also find this in previous podcast episodes on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and Spotify by searching for Pharma Intelligence. And if you're so inclined, feel free to give us a review. Thanks again for listening to the Pink Sheet Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery with Sarah Carlin-Smith, Kathy Kelly, and Matt Hobbs. Stay safe, get vaccinated, and we'll see you next time.